Moby wants to do. And I'm Moby! Hey! <laughs> hey! Lots of energy here today, Leland. Lots of energy. Yeah, well, I mean, literally before we hit the record button, you just said we're primed. We're primed because we yeah. a bit of a first for the show. We'll be having a... We'll have, we're having guests this episode, but not for the whole show, unfortunately. Just for the movie musing segment. So we've already kind of recorded that, and you'll hear it just come up just after the banter. But we're we're in it, and we're ready to fucking go. We're ready. Yeah, that's right. Just like they say uh, LFG on social media now. Let's fucking go. You know, L- LFG. I've seen that a few times. <laughs> but but you're right. We've we've taken two very nice gentlemen and we've confined them to a segment. So no, it's uh, <laughs> yes. it's it, it's it's a lot of fun. Jane, Andy, were great. Uh, listener um, won't spoil what it is, but just teasing that our movie musing segment uh, has to do with uh, collaboration with them, and it has to do with a very famous movie franchise. So. Uh, listen up for that, but the rest of the show we're recording as normal. Leland, let's let's have some banter, baby. Okay, uh, I have some fairly uh, actually timely banter, at least as far as the day we're recording. It's the thirtieth of April. This episode will come out a couple of weeks later. But uh, Star Wars Jedi Survivor just released for all platforms uh, for PC, Xbox, X Series, and PS Five on April twenty eighth. And here we are with another AAA title that is, uh, for some platforms, unplayable at release. Absolutely ridiculous. Now, as often is the case, the PC version is the the worst offender as far as being useless. Huge frame rate problems. Uh, some for some people, the game just isn't even loading. Like they're just stuck in, stuck at the main menu. I've seen a few uh, Reddit posts saying. The main menu looks great, but I haven't been able to get past it. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, well, Ghost Marty was raging about this. Ghost Marty was was on this because he's like, what's the fucking point of buying a AAA title anymore? What you really need to do is you've got the release date and your job as a consumer is to wait a few weeks or months and ensure there's enough patches to make the game playable and then you buy it. But that's absolutely that's not how life should be. That's not how products should be sold. So what do you know what the fuck is going on here? Because this is becoming a pattern. This is becoming a pattern. Uh, so the publisher for uh, Jedi Server is Electronic Arts. The developing studio is Respawn Entertainment. I believe that this game was already delayed as they were working on it. So clearly that delay time was not enough for them to polish this. I don't. I don't know how these things get like they miss on, on the quality control, right? Like the, the, the QA for this, I, I don't quite understand it. Apparently on the PC, if you have a better performing rig, this game runs worse. If you have a better graphics card, like you have a worse experience playing this game. Also for some, I've seen reports of some machines having really great graphics cards, like maybe a 3080 or even some people saying they have like a 40 series of graphics card but maybe their CPU isn't quite up to snuff comparatively. That just does not work with this game. If your CPU is suboptimal, awful, awful experience playing this game, apparently. Even on the consoles, uh, definitely frame rate issues, like freezing and skipping during cutscenes. It's it's not good. I just don't understand 
how this makes it, especially with a game like this. This is a single player experience game, perhaps with uh, uh, maybe like a, an online game, like maybe, you know, if it was an online multiplayer game where the the test loads are could never be as as high as it being released to the public and having, you know, the the majority of the fan base being able to play it and access it at once. Maybe that there's a little wiggle room in my opinion when you're thinking of something like that. But on a single player game, like how did these same glitches and, and bugs not get discovered before it's fully released? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. I obviously armchair developing, you know, is is a thing that a lot of people on the internet, especially, like to participate in. Kind of like I mean, that's almost like what we do at this on the show. So. I have zero knowledge of, you know, what it actually takes to de- to develop and program a-, a video game. But to me, it doesn't matter. This is this is shit like this is unacceptable, and we've seen in the last like five six years that it's just becoming more and more prevalent, not just from specific studios either. Yeah, it, it well, it's you literally have developers that are not competent somewhere along the line. They're not competent because if this game needed polish and more quality assurance then don't release it. And if you are going to release it, release it as early access, which I still don't like and increasingly don't like more and more, but release it early access for a discount. But do not slap full price on this and be like, yeah, you know, we'll patch it up in the next few weeks or months. And I think we have a duty as consumers, as excited as we may be for certain games like this, to, to not buy them, to not put money into them until the full payment you give for a full product actually equals a full incomplete product. How many times have we had this discussion like Fallout 76? Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. Yeah, exactly. Cyberpunk's a great example. And just so much that just needs to be patched. It's not fair. It's it's wrong. In my opinion, it's borderline fraudulent. You know the game is not complete. You know it's not ready but you're selling it for full price. And we have a duty as consumers to say no to this shit. I No, I, I agree. Um, and definitely as far as like, again, the PC version, like Steam reviews are getting tanked because, I mean, rightfully so. Uh, like there's, there's nothing malicious about it. It's clearly getting negative reviews because their game is broken. Right. It's, it's interesting to me because like, yes, moving forward now, now we're after launch date, moving forward, absolutely like you say as a consumer it's the only way that we can cast a vote is with the wallet like we say it all the time on this show but like when you're when when your game is is broken from launch date it's just so unfortunate for those people that pre-order i mean i don't i can't believe one i can't believe pre-orders are still a thing it boggles my mind how people feel the need to have to pre-order stuff i don't know exactly how prevalent they are anymore but i never pre-order shit i haven't pre-ordered shit in a decade just not I don't, why do, why do I need to, when I'm going to be able to get the game, but from pre-orders and people getting it, picking up right at, on launch date, I just, I, I have the utmost empathy for them because this is bullshit. And by all accounts from people that have actually been able to play this game, it's a great game. Uh, this is the sequel to Jedi fallen order that came out a, a couple years ago. I picked up Je- uh, fallen order, you know, a year or so after it was released for maybe 25 bucks well worth 25 bucks i had a lot of fun playing it i was looking forward to playing this but i'm not getting this until you know 
again, like a year after release, maybe if it goes on sale, depending on how long it takes to, to fix it, maybe there will be a heavy, heavy discount in a few months. Who knows? I'll keep my eye on it, but I would like to play and experience this game as much as I shit on Star Wars. I am a fan of the franchise. I do like Star Wars shows, movies, games. It's interesting, too, because now there's no longer an exclusivity deal that EA has for the franchise of Star Wars. So we haven't quite yet seen other studios take their own crack within the Star Wars Wars franchise. I would be really interested in seeing maybe uh, a change in in studio hands would make a difference because, like, as far as Star Wars and EA goes, their history of delivering uh, of of delivering games with controversy around them, like just Star Wars Battlefront and how those games originally were launched with all of their essentially pay to win and loot box bullshit, which to their credit, they did eventually correct and make the game an actual fun experience for everybody to play. So I have no doubt that this shit will be fixed because, I mean, they kind of have to. You yeah. know what I mean? To not go to jail. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so like it's going to be fixed. And eventually, for those that picked up Survivor Day 1, you're going to be able to play it, hopefully, with zero hiccups. But like it's, it's even crashing consoles, I've heard. Uh, apparently, by some reports, PS5 is one of the better platforms to be playing this game on. I, I don't know. I don't understand. Do you think that this is a problem with advancing technology and the hardware? I do not. Well, I believe the hardware is a bit obviously more complicated than it was decades ago. I think the problem lies in management of EA or these other companies in basically arbitrarily picking a date. Like we want this to be out to meet such and such a rush or such and such a date, regardless if that's actually achievable. And if you've ever heard the acronym for goal, where they give each letter of the word goal a different uh, word to go with it, A, the A in goal is for achievable. And it seems like people are not being given enough time to do proper quality assurance and optimization, which is, I think, very concerning. But then I I also wonder about just basic competence of the entire team. Like, do the quality assurance people in the limited time they have have competence? Because these bugs are not like, you know, on one level in an obscure spot you usually don't go to that you can clip through the wall. Like, these are big bugs, like very obvious bugs. And I don't know how this stuff was not figured out beforehand. So to me, it's management, it's competence. And I think that there's a a level of malevolence to it too, and that they think they can pull it off and still get massive sales. Now, something that's really concerning to me as you were talking, I booted up Metacritic. It does not have a single negative review from critics. It has five mixed and then 85 positive. I cannot believe that critics, some of them did not have these major issues that players do. By the way, Metascore from critics, 86. User score, 4.6. What does that say? Yeah, that's bizarre. There, there are problems here, and they're being somehow covered up by gaming media. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. That is interesting, because that uh, is kind of one of the, the touching points I wanted to hit on this banter is... When you look at a game and, and, and you're reviewing it and the initial reviews have to take in consideration the playability of it, because if you are struggling to play the game, 
how can you accurately assess whether or not the the mechanics of the story the 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 way it just functions like how how can you how can you review it if if you <laughs> struggle getting through it but then say it, it, and it's fixed in let's say let's be generous and say a month say in one month this game is working perfectly what do you what does that do to the overall reviews i mean do those people initially putting out reviews on they're going to go back and revisit it you know like especially when you look at like metacritic and steam reviews i suppose there's a shift that could be possible as it collects an aggregate overall, right? Uh, is what these, what the sites do. And when you're looking at it, like when you look at a steam, it's like generally positive or whatever the, the term may be, right? It's like the well's already tainted. So now going forward, even if they fix the game and all of the problems with it are not really a reflection on the, I guess, vision of the game at the end of the day. And once that, that, I, I'm using the word vision for lack of a better word, really. Like, but for the the end vision of this game that finally comes to fruition in a, in an optimal world, I don't know what that does. The, the well is tainted, and now there's a smear on this quote unquote record for 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 the developer and the publisher and all that stuff. It just kind of raises an interesting question to me about how about the veracity of these types of aggregate sites, you know, because, because when you're looking at this, like say in six months and you're like, hmm, maybe I want to pick up this and you're looking at reviews. You, I don't think it's going to show you the accurate picture of it. I don't think it shows the accurate picture right now. I think that's my entire point is that out of 90 critic reviews, I do not believe that there should be zero negative for this game. Statistically, that doesn't make sense. Maybe it's five or ten negative reviews from critics that say, hey, I couldn't really get this game working properly. To have zero, something doesn't make sense because you look at the user reviews and I'm looking at like 70, 71 negative or mixed and 36 positive. Like there should not be that kind of discrepancy. I know not everybody's a critic, but like, come on here. And I think it speaks to what makes me very wary of critics in general because you get these movie critics and they're given like a sneak preview to like whatever Marvel or DC movie. Doesn't matter what movie, they come out saying, oh yeah, fantastic, couldn't be better, best best movie in the cinematic universe and forever. And they say that for every damn movie that comes out now. So you can't believe them anymore. I mean, it's like Thor the Dark World. Oh yeah, it takes Thor in all the right directions, you know, darker, better story. And you see it, and you're like, no. But then they they say this for everything. Like, you never have these early critics that get a sneak peek and come out and say, you know what, that's a shitty Marvel movie. Don't watch it next week. It's shitty. You never get that. So like, are they being bought by the industry? Are they self-censoring? Like in this case with this uh, game, EA is obviously a huge company in the industry. Are critics self-censoring so that EA doesn't get mad at them and block them from future pre-releases? I don't know, but something is going on here. Like it does not pass the smell test. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, is it is it also there's some type of discrepancy between the like game keys that these reviewers are getting ahead of time versus what the the actual public release is? Like what? Is it like what is going? Is yeah. there something going on? Something is weird. And I, you're right. I mean, uh, that crossed my mind briefly about like what version 
or the critics give them. But then you think, well, if they had a good version on hand, why not give that version to everybody? Right? Like that's exactly. The the yeah. Situation. Like what's going on? Right. Yeah I, yeah, yeah. I don't know what's going on, but I mean, when you look at Metacritic and you see, you know, 8.6 versus 4.6 or whatever it is, that is a huge gap and it should be very concerning. I certainly will not be buying it. I don't have a huge interest in it, but I'm certainly not going to be buying it until like, I'm sure it's, it's patched beyond patch, but then already there's something insulting about me buying it on sale. It's like, I don't want to buy that or sorry. I don't want to buy that shit at full price. Like I don't want to wait until that's on sale now. Yeah, absolutely. It's insulting. It's insulting. Yeah. It actually, it's interesting that we're discussing this. I don't want to cut you off, but it does lead into the one banter that I had. Sure. Please. Which is, is the flash and it's the, the new flash trailer. I'm going to ask your opinion about it, but where the connection is, is that a lot of critics have exited sneak preview to that flash movie. They're saying, Oh, it's the best superhero movie in years and this or that. I, I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't know else to say it. I, I'm sorry with, with all the turmoil involving this movie and Ezra Miller, I, I don't believe that it's the greatest movie since sliced bread, but once again, all these critics getting out of a sneak peek saying it's the best, best superhero movie. And I'm going like, no, I don't believe it will be. Yeah. So, but you know, the new flash trailer, I, I sent it to you. I sent a link. I'm not sure if you watched it. I assume you did, but what did you think of that Batman heavy trailer? I actually have not watched it. Uh, I did. I have seen the first one though. And I will say the first trailer looked pretty good. Like it, it, intrigued me i like the like flashpoint uh source material from like the comics and i mean it's been done a a, a couple different times as far as in animation as well i do like that i like the alternate universes i like seeing the different versions of these characters i think that that that's something that i really like i do like the multiverse as much as we bitch here now like marvel's phase four and five and six like it's too multiverse heavy and inconsistently multiversal which is almost oxymoronic to say an inconsistency in a multiverse kind of doesn't, <laughs> that's kind of the point of it. You know, like the parallel universes are supposed to be different and, and not consistent. So I, I mean, I like the first trailer. I am just apprehensive about the whole Ezra Miller shit behind it too. It's like, it leaves a sour taste in my mouth thinking that I would enjoy this film based on everything that's going on, gone on with the actor. So I don't know. I, I just don't think this film could ever be, even if the film is great, it's only ever going to be good for me because of Ezra Miller. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the second trailer I think is different than the first. I actually quite liked both overall, but they definitely minimize Ezra Miller, especially in the first half of the the final trailer. And they really just focus on Keaton's Batman. He has a lot that they filmed him. He looks like he's slimmed down a lot. Like he's, he's pretty cut around his face, which is cool. Um, he says his famous lot line from Batman 89, like let's get crazy in the trailer, which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, what I didn't like, I can tell you, I mean, I don't, I just don't like the whole feel of how Ezra Miller has been given a pass. Like his toxic yeah. behavior, I would put as like a nine or a 10 out of 10. Like, it is horrible, and there have been so many consistent situations of his bad behavior, and he reflexively does like an offhand apology whenever he's caught, and you can tell it's the most 
insincere apology. And he just, well, but I mean, the proof's in the pudding. He just keeps doing the same thing. And he's being given a pass, I guess, because the movie's been shot or he's so important to the DCU. And I don't like that. The other thing I don't like from the final trailer is obviously Michael Keaton needs a lot of CG help to do his fight scenes. You know, the man's in his 70s. And it is some of the worst CG I can remember seeing in either superhero universe. It is rough. I'm talking like 1997, you know, outsourced to Uzbekistan's sixth best CGI studio worse. Like it is not good looking. That worries me. I was listening actually while I was jogging yesterday to a podcast about it. And these guys were trying to be serious, but they they basically said they think it's going to have a big opening weekend and then just like tank. I agree with you about the Ezra Miller thing. I mean, it's a similar situation now that Marvel is going through with Jonathan Major, uh, who plays King the Conqueror, and his like domestic abuse uh, allegations and all that stuff that he's going through. It's not good. For DC, like it just seems like they had a pretty obvious out in scrapping this film and just never putting this film out. Right. Like that's the most, that's the easiest thing that Warner brothers could easily could have done. And they would have taken the hit. Obviously this could have been another like Batgirl write off if they really wanted it to be, you know what I mean? When it comes to Marvel, like they're fucked. Yeah. What are they going to do? Like Jonathan Majors has already shot season two of Loki as reprising or as his role as Kang in that. It's heavily based around. That's where Kang was in, introduced in that Disney Plus series. He's the major overarching villain uh, to Phase Six. What the fuck are they going to do? Like they're screwed. They're absolutely screwed. And they, regardless, it's almost like regardless of whether or not, I guess, if Jonathan uh, is is you know not convicted for anything, oh great. I mean, good for him if he's proven isn't innocent. Then he's proven innocent. But like, what what is it? What is Marvel going to do? What is Disney going to do? I don't know, because they seem to make these investments in these new actors or, you know, up and coming actors without doing any research on who these people actually are, like in their personal lives. And like, I'm sorry, but that type of research, I think, should be done when you have a character that and an actor that's going to appear in multiple series or franchises. The investment is so big. And like, look, I've been... I wouldn't say a fan, but I've been watching Ezra Miller since that movie that I always gush about Stanford prison experiment, that indie film. I think that was like 2013 or 2014. And I remember Ezra Miller's first apologies in bad uh, press was coming out within a couple of years of that movie. So like, this is nothing new with Ezra Miller. Like it's not like in the last six weeks, he just went off the deep end. And it just, it looks so bad on these big entertainment companies because they're the first to virtue signal when it is uh, someone else's actor or an actor who's like a minor role in one of their series. But it's like, oh, well, if it's a major component of our universes, well, that's different. You know, this, this time we roll out the red carpet and treat this person with kid gloves. Anyone else is like immediately canceled. And it's just... It's very disingenuous, in my opinion. You can call me out if you think I'm wrong. 
No, I, I agree with you that there is an intense hypocrisy. Uh, anytime that these major studios are, are talking about the, the monetary losses that they may or may not take. And you know it's literally a decision as simple as bookkeeping. Yes. If they, they weigh the pros and cons and they come out in the black. Exactly. That's where they're leading. That's what it like. It's so obvious. 100% Leland. The morality of the situation, what's right and wrong, really doesn't matter to, to no, Marvel or no. DC. Like you said, they're they're crunching numbers and someone says, I, I hate to compare to the situation, but it reminds me of what Ford did with their exploding Pinto cars in the 1970s. Ford basically decided it's cheaper for us to keep the defect and pay off all these individual lawsuits than to actually fix the problem. And that's what DC and MCU are going. They're like, well, it's it's cheaper for the brand or better overall if we put this toxic person put his movies out there because they'll make some money and we'll lose less money but like damned be our morals that we preach about all the time like because what Ezra Miller and Jonathan Majors are being accused of are not the little things they're they're the 10 out of 10 things that you can't do sexual abuse grooming um physical abuse hitting women like all these things you can't do this stuff in 2023 but if it's a big enough star the studio protects them over and over and over and i'm getting sick of it and i'm sick of it when critics because critics are also pretty big virtue signalers you know come in and nobody speaks a word about the flash like the controversy of ezra miller anymore it's like oh no it's this great movie and he gives a great performance it's like, okay, well, if, if that's all you're going to judge this movie on, then you judge all movies based on this criteria, but don't be hypocrites. Don't be hypocrites. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're, you're setting the precedent now and you routinely go against that precedent, right? Ha they have in the past. We'll continue to do so moving forward. Now, I, the only thing I can think of what both these studios kind of really need to do. And, and I suppose, I don't know. Ezra's been like convicted of shit, right? Like he's been found guilty of many of these uh, allegations. I mean, there's plenty of people that speaking out about what he's done and like witnesses to what he's been doing. I have no doubt that he's done everything he's been accused of. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to say he has admitted to a number of things. I don't know if he's gone through the full court process to actually be found guilty, but he, okay. he does admit when he's confronted with these things, but he basically says like none of it's my fault because you know i had anxiety and different mental illnesses when i was a teenager and then he goes and does it again which is the worst thing that's not repentance that's not like i have done shit and i will not do it anymore he just gets in more shit and gives another offhand apology and he's not facing any consequences that's the thing he's not facing any consequences so the only thing I can think of either of these studios to, that can really do is because they are actually kind of in a position where they can transition away from these actors and maintain those characters. I mean, one, there's been many different characters that take up the mantle of the Flash. So that's pretty easy, right? In the case of Kang, it seems like it's a pretty easy move to kill, quote unquote kill off Jonathan Major's Kang, have a alternate version of Kang that's played by a different actor to come in and, and reprise and take over the mantle of the big bad Kang. Essentially they could really easily do something the same with the flash. They could keep Barry Allen if they want, but they can introduce us a multiverse version of Barry Allen. Sure. That somehow gets into our main continuity, blah, blah, blah. Like these are the outs for these two studios if they need to take them. And 
I I would be very surprised if that happens in this Flash movie. If like we're at the end of it, the the result of it is we're left with a different Flash. I'd be very surprised if they somehow managed to do some rewrites, some reshoots, and keeping all that under wraps. I'd be incredibly surprised, but very happily surprised if that happens to be the case. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I agree. I think that there is an out for them. That out takes some work, takes a little bit of a financial hit, takes some time. And they again have just crunched the numbers on their calculator and been like, no, fuck it. Just release it and go. We'll see what happens. But yeah, it's um, it's disappointing. Uh, do you have a second banter? I've got a minor second one. Okay, go for it. Yeah, uh, well, I finished watching Barbarian, which I know Ghost Marty is watching. Now, have you watched Barbarian? I have, yeah. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, I don't think it was bad. Yeah, I thought it was very average. Like, it's not a movie I would go back to. And it had its moments. But, I mean, I got the impression that you liked it quite a bit. What, what did you like about that movie? I know it's not an official review, but... Sure. Um, what I liked most about it was the subversion that the writing had. Um, just really just starting base with the casting. I mean, the, 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 the characters that you think are going to be bad. Yes. And, and, or good just kind of aren't. And I think all of the performances were, were really great. I mean, I really love Justin Long was great in this movie. Like, oh, he yeah. was a perfect, perfect like he played the role he had perfectly. It was great. So those are the things that I really appreciate. Like as far as like being a horror in, in the horror genre, to me, this was like, this is not a scary horror film. This is a, oh God, kind of horror film to me. Right. And it has its funny parts. If you're as fucked up as we are, like I, I had a few oh, yeah, laughs. Yeah, yeah. I had a few Leland yeah, laughs. Definitely. So definitely. I agree with you on the, on the casting. And how you're subverted with each character. But the subversion is not predictable. That's what I liked. Like when I saw Justin Long's character or... Um, Skarsgård? Like they do a great job. But I don't... I, I don't... For example, in Skarsgård's face, I, I don't want to give uh, spoilers. But it's not predictable where these characters end up. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I thought that... Um, I thought that the mother was a pretty good bad guy. Like she was gross, but also, I mean, there were several villains in the movie, I should say, but mm -hmm. the mother is True. kind of the main <laughs> monster. And uh, it's funny because she's like one of the monsters that's kind of not horrible overall. She has her own really messed up motivations why she does the things that she does. It's like they're it, it plays more into the subversions because it's more like the, the 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 monster of the quote unquote monster of the film is really like a victim like the rest of the cast that we're seeing being victimized kind of thing. Uh, it's just like one of those. The story itself is really weird yes. and not entirely fleshed out like we get the we get kind of very few scenes laying that groundwork and then the majority of the movie is us experiencing the consequences of what has happened a few decades prior. I don't know. I don't think you're supposed to make like too much sense of it. If you know what I mean? No. And I can actually shed some light on that because I, I looked up the film on IMDB and Googled it after like what was behind it. And basically the, the person who wrote it came up with this idea of like, 
let's pick an Airbnb and let's pick all the most like disconcerting, uncomfortable situations that could possibly surround booking an Airbnb. But the writer was like winging it. So like he started, he went and it just started with like a regular Airbnb and all these, he said he wanted to fill it with as many red flags as possible. So the watcher is always like, run, run, get out of there, run, don't stay here overnight. But then it obviously goes into a weird quasi like supernatural monster uh, realm. So, so that's what happened. You know, it's funny the day that I started watching that, something came across my newsfeed, which reminded me of you. It was this house in like Michigan. And this person was trying to replace the original toilet paper holder in one of their bathrooms and accidentally ripped out the wall to find a secret room. And in that secret room was a McDonald's burger and fries meal from the original McDonald's. We're talking like not even Ronald McDonald, <laughs> like 1953 McDonald's meal Whoa. in the secret like room that they McDonald's. found. Yeah, yeah, founder McDonald's. And I'm like, oh, that that would be Leland. He would go deeper into this house in the search of the ultimate McDonald's. Well, you've left this breadcrumb for me. I must follow it. Leland, come back. Take the take the revolver. Take the flashlight. There must be more McDonald's down here, Moby. Oh, no, Leland. Wow. Ba 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 ba. <laughs> it's an inside joke there listener but uh, <laughs> yeah barbarian i would give it a watch i mean it's free on streaming i think it's on uh, crave is where i watched it i'm pretty sure oh nice okay yeah if you got that i think it's worth a, a watch through yeah unless you got anything else let's rock the segment welcome to movie musings this segment is called bond brothers uh, very excited listener. Uh, several months ago, I think about uh, five months ago now, and I think I mentioned it on the podcast as well. I guest starred on a podcast called The Ratings Room. And uh, today we are very happy to have as guests for this segment, Jay and Andy from The Ratings Room. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to, great to be here, Moby. Can I be really awkward and just call you out straight away and say it's actually the rating room? I don't. I want to make sure people find us. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> Not awkward at all. No, no, please. The status quo around here is shitting on Moby. So have at her. Absolutely, I do it. Plenty. You know, you're taking the burden off of my shoulders. Quite honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you guys should have purposefully given me the wrong name just so I could have. But no, that's. <laughs> We could, we could have, I could have been polite and done the British thing and just let it go to the end, but <laughs> I, I figured I would uh, just get in there early. Jump, jump in. So yeah, tell us about the, you know, the rating room and your podcast and just really like, we want to know how you guys started as, as the start to this segment. How did this all get formed? Well, we, we've been thinking about starting a podcast for a while and No Time to Die was about to come out in the cinema. So we've actually been doing a lot of research and learning about how to do a podcast because you know myself and Andy have never done a podcast before we do listen to a lot of podcasts so we had to do lots of research about how to edit um set up because myself and Andy aren't very good on social media are, are we Andy so we've had to do all the social media bits as well and uh, for the pod and we we had to research a lot of the films as well. We've we've obviously seen the films numerous times, and we wanted to do this right and research each of the films. So 
it's just took quite a bit of time actually working on on everything yeah it was um a lot of idea gathering to start with just uh well, well, we actually we met in the pub, didn't we? And we had a chat. I said, "Let's let's we do a did, podcast." Yeah. I was like, "Yeah, okay, that sounds like a good idea." And then reality kicks in. It's like, "Ah, oh, shit, we've got to record a podcast. So how do we go about doing that?" Um, so then, um, you know, the idea of Bond came up. We figured we can get some content out of this. You know, twenty-five films to go after, and then it just kind of took on a life of its own from there. We um, we've purposely taken a long time to get from idea stage to recording stage, but just to make sure that we. We're doing the best job that we can, and hopefully that comes through in our episodes that have been released. Uh, but but yeah, we're we're novices to this. We're we're not experts. We're not we're not super fans. But you know, it's a it's a process, and we've we've enjoyed it, and hopefully others have too. Yeah, and it, it's really interesting because it was actually Leland. Even though this is your first time meeting him, Leland found you guys looking for guests and. He sent me, I think it was an email or a, a text message, I forget. And he said, hey, you should check these guys out. Might be you know, worth an ask to see if you want a guest host for fun. Because Leela knew I was a big Bond fan. Um, so I you know, was very happy to be on. But a uh, question for you, it seems almost overwhelming with so many Bond films, how you were able to get so many guests to discuss the, the movies with you. So... I don't know how much you can shed light on that, but how did you find all these guests for this project? Well, they get, well we were saying this not too long ago. The guests, it's been really interesting because I don't think one super fan has had the same opinion as another super fan. So going into the podcast, I kind of expected Sean Connery to be everyone's favorite Bond, but the distribution across them is quite even. I mean, I would say the, the only one that hasn't been favourite actor is George Lazenby. We've got Roger Moore, Connery, Dalton, Brosnan, Craig. It's pretty even in terms of your favourite actors, and it, it's quite subjective. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that. <laughs> Part of me is kind of snickering because I, I would have thought there would be that one person who is just like George Lazenby is the best. I wish he got 10 movies in the franchise, but apparently you didn't have that. He or she has got to be out there somewhere. Maybe they're listening to this and, uh, you know, contact one of us, you know, who who are you? Who is this strange person out there who likes Lazenby above all others? That's right. You have to think of some like exotic old capital, like Rangoon or something like that. And there's this one fan hiding out. He's like, George Lazenby, I always wanted to discuss him on a podcast. But yeah, actually, that leads me into one question that I did have, which is, as you entered this this first season of your podcast, as you call it, where you discuss Bond, was Sean Connery still numerically the most liked Bond? Or was it really as even as you're saying through all the Bonds except Lazenby? He wasn't the... The most popular one out of, oh. every, out of all the Bonds. He's my favorite, James Bond. Before we started recording the episodes, what we did was we, we did our favorite Bond actors before, and then we've been re-watching the films each week. And my top two actually switched place. So before we started re-watching them, I had Pierce Bosnan as my number one, and then Connery as number two. But re-watching the, the films, it... It came out that the Bosnan films, I do like Bosnan, but his films were quite weak compared to the Connery ones. Whereas Andy, I think you you had some movement, but your top two stayed the same. Yeah, that's right. And I, I guess 
outside of the two of us, if we think about the guests we've had on on the episodes that are upcoming and have, have already been released, and just general chit-chat, Connery got quite a lot of love, but I was surprised by the amount of love for Timothy Dalton, to be honest. Particularly on like the Reddit forums. A lot of, to- lot of Dalton fans out there. Uh, but but Connery Connery is you know when I when I speak to say like like my dad for example um, in a few weeks time there's an episode with with my dad um, he's you know of an age that Connery was around when he was a kid so Connery was was his bond at that time um, and other people I've spoken to of a similar age or of similar opinion but yeah it seem it seems to have shifted in uh, certainly in the in the Reddit world and maybe other forums as well that Dalton seems to be uh, seems to have found a new lease of life. Yeah, which which makes me happy. I mean, I've told you guys that Pierce Brosnan is my number one, but I'm sure, I'm pretty sure I mentioned on your podcast that Dalton is very close to me. Certainly he's my number two. I wish he had been given the chance to do more. You know, two films is just, just a tease of what he could have done. Now, my personal opinion is that Timothy Dalton was probably the film Bond closest to the bond that ian fleming wrote in his novels did any of your other guests say that or what other reasons were they promoting timothy dalton as such a popular bond that was a common theme with the people that chose dalton in terms of he he's the likeness to fleming how he wrote the the james bond character in the novels but also Kind of following on, Daniel Craig is quite similar to Dalton in terms of the films mm. are quite gritty. So Daniel Craig was another favourite uh, among the guests. But I think one of the things, Andy, actually, the the guests that we've had on, there were a couple of guys that are probably the same age as myself and Andy. So Andy's slightly younger than me, but I'm in my early 40s. Whereas a lot of the guests have come on, I would probably say the 20s and 30s. So they did favour a lot more of the modern films. Same with the Bond Girls as well. So the Bond Girls is it distributed. I, I thought that people would probably pick the classic Bond Girls, but there were a lot of the Bond Girls that featured in the da- um, Daniel Craig films coming out as everyone's favourite. Yeah, Dalton, you, you're going back to your earlier point, Jay, you, the word gritty. That came up a lot when, it, when people spoke about Dalton, that kind of sense of realism. Now, my opinion of Dalton is slightly different from others, and I've actually... I consider him the weakest Bond, which is a bit of a controversial statement in its own right. And the reason I say that is I found him to be quite inconsistent. Like there was sometimes where he was, you know, really cold and callous and heartless, and then other times where he was quite vulnerable. And I understand that they need that mix, but I think he took it to extremes. And it, you could he never really kind of settle on a on a sto- on a on a path, as it were. And uh, Moby, to your earlier point around. Dalton needed more films. I actually think a third film would have helped, or at least a third. Because if I think of Connery, his third film was was arguably my favourite of his. Craig's third film is probably my favourite of them all. Roger Moore had a very strong third film. I think it just takes time to develop into that role, and I think Dalton needed more time to really establish himself. So for that reason, I found him, he was nearly there, but not quite, in in my opinion. But but the the grittiness and the the realism that he brought, I think, is probably the most common theme that I've seen from from other Bond fans about uh, Dalton and, and why they're fans of him. Andy mentioned Roger Moore. One of the things that did surprise me with the guest episodes is how much love Roger Moore gets in the Bond fandom because 
the Roger Moore films, even though they were entertaining, they tended to score a bit lower on on the rating room, um, especially on my list. So I was surprised with how much love Roger Moore got. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know if it's a generational thing because you did mention you had a lot of uh, younger fans on. But when I was introduced to James Bond, it was by my parents. And my dad was very much a, a Sean Connery person. But my mom was very much Roger Moore. That was her favorite. And so she tried to sell me growing up when I was in middle and high school on, on Roger Moore. And she just said, you know, he was such a breath of fresh air of fun compared to Sean Connery. Sean Connery, he was intense. He was this really good kind of masculine hero but uh in a lot of the roger moore films he kind of lets you just take a deep breath and dare i say even laugh a little bit in a lot of his films and i kind of like that because you still do buy him as a charming suave tall dark handsome secret agent but he's got this this really funny wit to him just i i i think the not so much the writing of the dialogue but the scenes in his movies are just very entertaining. So it's, yeah, it, it, it's interesting that he's got a lot of love there. I guess if Timothy Dalton has a lot of love and Roger Moore has a lot of love, where did my favorite Pierce Brosnan end up settling with your guess? Kind of mid-range or was he on the lower end? It was mid-range. It was quite even. So out of all the, the guest episodes, I've tallied up and Roger Moore was just just a favorite above Daniel Craig. And then Brosnan and Dalton and Connery's kind of like in the middle. I'm reading the autobiography, actually, of Roger Moore um, at the moment. My name is my Bond. Um, it's really interesting, actually. He was quite poorly when he was a young kid, in and out of hospital a lot. But he, he even at a young age, he's always been a bit of a ladies' man. <laughs> was he not... <laughs> Was he not an intelligence agent during World War Two? Am, am I misremembering? Or? <laughs> he in his in his book he was earmarked to work in the intelligence agency, but he didn't know what the acronym was, so he ended up going and working for the officers. So he, he was an officer in the army, but he actually ended up um, working in the army that deals with entertainment, so booking like famous people to come and enter, entertain the troops in Germany and Austria and Italy. So that's where um, he he ended up in the army because he did acting before before he went in the army. So he he came across people from the West End that ended up in the army as well. Now I've I've not read the book, but when you said he wants to work in the intelligence agency, and the first thing he does is not understand the acronym, like straight away there's a, there's a joke there somewhere. He's not even intelligent <laughs> yeah. enough to know the acronym. Uh, yeah, I don't know if he's a good fit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so funny because like i'm not the largest i'm not the biggest bond fan really at all and like these older bonds like i haven't really seen any of those movies uh like for me like kind of you've always speaking to just generational draw to a specific bond for me it is um pierce brosnan because that's those are the movies that i kind of grew up with as i was really first being shown what and who james bond was and the, the that whole world right of of that fictional character so but i don't have much to to compare him to but i am wondering just how how these older films with the with the the older bonds actually like hold up for the two of you like re-watching them now because i'm thinking like if i went and watched 
rewatched all of the the Pierce Brosnan films, I don't know if I would enjoy them as much as like I nostalgically recall that I did. And also, it's interesting that you know Brosnan is kind of lower or mid or low tier on the list of favorites. I wonder how much that has to do with the in between of like cinematic technology that that era of his films were kind of being released in because I mean there's the infamous awful CGI of the you know with Brosnan riding the with the the on the surfboard of the uh, the parachute for the tsunami right like who friend of the show Eric Eric Petey actually right. animated that segment right which we is had a, cra- a, a crazy guests, connection yeah. to us he's a friend of mine now friend of the show and he actually animated he was in Britain the segment with James Bond on the the paraglider uh for for die another day yeah so I wonder how much that kind of factors into people's opinion of of these of the different bonds well it's interesting because my top five is Goldfinger on a Majesty's Secret Service from What Should We Love then Casino Royale then GoldenEye so I've got three films from the the 60s and then i've got you know two modern films whereas andy do you want to just recap what your ones are my top three were all craig films but then i've got the world is not enough in there. i've not got the top five to hand yet i'm not prepared as well as you but i've got uh, i think i had goldfinger in at four and the world is not enough in at five did i that's right yeah yeah so i'm i'm very much drawn to the more modern films uh, so you really point around how the older ones stand up to the test of time i think some films more than others, but there are certain elements that are just quite uncomfortable. I think particularly in the Connery era, the way he treats women is, uh, you know, you can't get away with that kind of stuff. I'm not sure you could then, to be honest, but you definitely can't now. And some some things are just a little bit uncomfortable to watch in that regard. And, you know, when you look at like the special effects, the fake blood, all that kind of stuff, some of it is just utterly terrible. But I guess at the time it was probably state of the art. And I think when Brosnan came along, for, for me, he kind of modernized the franchise. So going into this, we had ideas in our mind of who our favorite Bonds were or how we ranked them. I was pleasantly surprised with Brosnan, I have to say. I He was the, the Bond I grew up with as well. The first uh, Bond film I saw at the cinema was The World Is Not Enough, and I've seen every one since. So I was of that age where Brosnan was kind of... He was Bond at the time that I was starting starting to get into Bond. And I remember enjoying them at the time, but I always had in my mind that Connery and Moore were both better than Brosnan. But going through this exercise of re-watching with fresh eyes, older eyes, I really, really enjoyed Brosnan. I think he kind of took the best of Connery and the best of Moore and combined them together into a pretty decent James Bond, it has to be said. I completely agree. I think that Pierce Brosnan, more than all the other Bonds, was kind of the jack of all trades, the Swiss army knife bond. He had, he didn't excel in any one area. Like it wasn't like he was the most physically badass. It wasn't like he was the most intimidating or funny, but he had bits of all of that. And he was just a very good general purpose bond for the lack of a better term. That sounds kind of awkward, like I'm commodifying him, but it's probably the best explanation I have and also find it interesting. I think we may have touched that on that on my episode that I recorded with with you guys, but how you mentioned that the world is not enough is is one of your top bonds. I've just noticed anecdotally in various comment sections online 
when I check out James Bond, that that's one movie that's being revised in a positive light. I think people go, well, I can't buy Denise Richards as a doctor of nuclear physics, which makes sense, <laughs> but she's fun. Like she's fun in the movie. And other than that, I mean, you have the second appearance of Zukoski, which is, is oddly emotional and uh, kind of cool. Valentin Zukoski. And I know I mentioned this on your podcast. I loved Electra King. I love her as a Bond girl, as a villain. And so I, I agree with you. I think it is a a wrongly uh, shit on, for the lack of a better term, Bond that's finally getting a little bit of positive light. I just have to add a point there, maybe, because Andy has it highly rated, but I don't. So it's oh. one of the weak. Yeah, so in the podcast, we... Our scores have been always within two points of each other, and that's the biggest difference in the whole out of the 25 films. That's where we have the, the biggest difference. So for me, I think Pierce Brosnan's films went down in quality with each film. So GoldenEye, 8 out of 10. Tomorrow Never Dies, 7. And The World Is Not Another Die Another Day is 5 out of 10, where Andy scores that differently. But that, that, that era is where me and Andy have the, the biggest differences. So The World Is Not Enough is actually in my bottom four films out of the 25 with Die Another Day as well. Now, now, do, when you guys discuss this, because obviously I wasn't there, Andy, do you think it is nostalgia why you have it rated higher? Is it as simple as that? I did wonder that, you know, with it being the first one I saw in the cinema, you know, it's good, good memories that I have of the film. But now I think it's just genuinely a very, very strong film with some strong characters. You mentioned Denise Richards. She's she's fine, you know, whatever. She's more than made up for the fact that you've got Electra King. Like you said, I'm a big fan of Electra King. I think one of the best Bond girls of the franchise, and arguably one of the best villains of the franchise as well. The way the story unfolded, and the twist of her actually being the one in charge, not being the one that's subservient, I think was really, really well done. And... Brosnan, I think, was on fine form. I think, and the action, it just, for me, it had a, a bit of everything. And uh, it was a real return to form. I, I, I think that's fair. I d do want to give uh, Jay a platform as well, though, to speak on why he disagreed on this film. So you can give an incorrect opinion to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, because we're watching them week by week, so... We've watched GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies. I just felt you could tell the quality just dropped off. And Pierce Brosnan is consistent in how he delivers Bond. I think he, like you said, he's jack of all trades. And he's, he's probably the most rounded Bond. But I think Robert Carlyle's villain was quite weak. Electra Kearn is very good. Christmas Jones, you know, she's, she's Lara, Joan, um, Lara Croft in Bond, really. And it was just it was just a drop in quality. I think Goldeneye, like I said, is in my top five. And Tomorrow Never Dies is a very strong film. But the last two films just let Brosnan down. And Andy, you've mentioned this on the podcast where you're saying you can have a, a good Bond actor in a bad film and vice versa. And I think, unfortunately for Brosnan, he's had two strong films and two weak films in his four films. It would have been nice if he had another film either before or afterwards. I know you, you mentioned you like, like Dalton, but it would have been nice if Brosnan had maybe two, both of Dalton's films and had a longer one and then handed it over to Daniel Craig because I don't think Brosnan could have done Casino Royale. No, but you bring up an interesting point because I did see a quote, and I've seen this a number of times through the years, that 
when uh, the producers, uh, is it Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson? Yeah. They wanted to go in a less gadget-based, more down-to-earth film after Die Another Day. And Pierce Brosnan was totally down with that. He said, yeah, that's exactly where I would have wanted the franchise to go. And I would have done another Bond. And that's, you know, it's, I just finished watching Picard season three recently. And it was nice for that crew of actors to finally get a proper send off. Whereas their last movie, Star Trek Nemesis in 2002 was not a good send off in many fans opinions. And I would have wanted the same for Pierce Brosnan. I felt like Die Another Day was definitely his weakest film of his four. And I just wish he was given a, a better, better send off. Yeah. So what we do as part of the pod is we rank each of the films, but we also rank the films within the actors. So when I look at our little list, myself and Andy out of the 40 points available for Brosnan, we only had one point difference. So even though the world is not enough is the biggest difference, the other films were only subtle differences really. So he, he is consistent. You know, in terms of just, you know, our ratings are fairly consistent, even though we've got a variation of where they, they land. Uh, I think we both agree Die Another Day is the weakest Brosnan film, but I don't think that's down to Brosnan. I think he was he was let down with a script that went too far with silliness, too far with gadgets, and, um, yeah, not not the send-off that he deserved. I completely agree. I guess the the flip side is he couldn't do Casino Royale because of the nature of it being a reboot. It would have to be a continuation of the timeline. So then it becomes a different film altogether for, for better or worse. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what else to add to that because I think that's a really good encapsulation of why we moved on from Pierce Brosnan. They really wanted to make that Casino Royale. And as you said, it, it's a reboot. You had to have a new baby bond for the lack of a, a better term. As you went through this season with uh, your other guests, was there anything you two learned about podcasting, specifically like with guests? Did Were most of your guests very professional and, and open? Did you have to pry certain guests more than others to get them to, to talk? Or just kind of looking behind the scenes how your experience was hosting so many guests? I think generally, from my point of view, it's been really positive. One of the things, as you know, maybe we did was we sent the interview questions out to all the guests beforehand. So I think that helped kind of let them frame how they wanted to go into the questions um, and answers. And also we gave each guest an opportunity to kind of end the, the guest episode by either drilling down on a particular part of the franchise that we, we haven't covered. So generally, I think the hardest thing was dealing with time zones. Mm. Um, we did have a number of other podcasters come on so that that made life a bit easier, and we've got we had one guest, and he he's he, he I would say he's famous within the Bond scene in terms of he he collects um, lots of Bond memorabilia. So I need well we need to figure out how to do some jazzy video podcast there on YouTube because <laughs> he sent us lots of photos of all his collection and he made the the newspapers and he's been on TV because of how much he he spent on Bond memorabilia. I, I think it was a largely positive experience to myself. I was very nervous going in just because I didn't really know what to expect. And I think what it did is it highlighted just how little me and Jay actually know about James Bond compared to <laughs> the super fans out there. 
which is fine because I don't I don't think we've ever claimed to be experts. We're we're kind of I'd say casual fans with you know a little bit more knowledge, but we're certainly I certainly wouldn't consider myself a super fan. And to get other points of view and to get things that we'd never really thought about before, nothing nothing that comes from research, but you know just the kind of the feeling that Bond gives to people. And I think the way that people speak so passionately about it, I think, was was quite a revelation. And I, I really enjoyed the experience of talking to other people just about what their feelings are of, of James Bond and what it means to them. And um, just, you know, without it sounding a bit too cheesy, it's kind of that revelation of, oh, this is, this is a, a world beyond just simply the films. And, uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed the process, really enjoyed meeting and and speaking to various Bond fans from all over the world. But yeah, it it shows that uh, me and Jay need to up our game when it comes to knowledge, that's for sure. Well, you guys were very good in creating a nice open sandbox for someone who was passionate like I was about Goldeneye to just dive in and discuss. You know, one thing I don't like, and you see this in YouTube all the time when People are answering questions that were mailed into them or whatnot. There, there tend to be a lot of leading questions that kind of lead someone into more of a yes or no direction. And I felt you two really created this, this open space, like I've been saying, where I could kind of take the discussion into the direction where I had the most passion. And and so I really appreciated that about your podcast. I'm looking forward to, to listening catching up, listening to to all of them, I mean, beside my own. Just to follow on what Andy said, one of the things that I felt was interesting is building what Andy said about how people, there's like one person who lives in England went to New Orleans because live and let die and, you know, walked around there. We've, we've had another one who has been to all the premieres, you know, Red, Red Carpet, met Daniel Craig, Pierce Bros and all the Bond girls, villains. So he's been to each one. It was from one of the Bosnian films. Was it Die Another Day, Andy? Do I think it was, that? yeah. Certainly the last, at least the last six. Yeah, so that's interesting. And then we've got a number of different guests that actually has got some of the poker chips from Casino Royale as well that they've collected. So it's it's fascinating because I can't think of any... So I'm a, I would say I'm less than a casual Bond fan. So I'm not a super fan. So we do a lot of research and... Going back to your episode, maybe, you know, when you get some guests and you, you ask them what your favorite theme song is, you've obviously got 25. Some guests pick like a, a random one, for example, what you've fit, or they pick a secondary song or like a B-side song. And you think, oh, what's that? So then you've got to go and research and listen to that because we cover the theme songs and we rank each of those week by week. And it's just the depth of knowledge. It, it's just I just found it so fascinating and it's all subjective. There's no right or wrong. You know, it's just interesting to hear everyone's different viewpoint. So yeah, I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, we we might do guest episodes in the future for other seasons. We just have to see how things go. I don't know if it's a perfect segue into this, but we're talking about passion, obviously James Bond. And I, I wanted to quickly pull you guys on a few of your favorites. So We'll go back and forth. Maybe uh, we'll go Andy to Jay, then maybe Jay to Andy. But uh, my first question for you is is maybe one of the most obvious, your all-time favorite Bond film. Uh, let's start with you, Andy. What was number one on your list? Number one on my list is Skyfall. Um, you know, a modern, a modern film. I'm a big fan of the Daniel Craig era. I just remember 
coming out of the cinema and thinking that's as good as it's ever going to get. And I, th- and I think in many, many regards it is. It's, it's that perfect combination of new style film with nods to the classic Bond era. The story was fantastic. It's very, very emotive and emotional. And, you know, it's got, it's got the villain, a tremendous villain in, in Javier Bardem. It's got, it's probably the one film where Bond girls don't take center stage quite so much, but I don't think that means, you know, means anything negative towards the film. It's just one of those films that I can watch over and over and over again and not get bored of. It's, it's got a bit of everything. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I love it too. It, it You're right. It had a lot of nostalgia in there, but it never pushed it to the point of being distracting. I thought it was really well done. The fight scenes were great. I did like, I mean, she had a minor role, but I did like, I think her name is Severine or Sevian. Severine. Severine as yeah. a Bond girl. I just thought she was, you know, very good looking and tragic in her, her little story. So yeah, I would have Sky fall up. Definitely my top five. Uh, Jay, what about you for your favorite? And just before I tell you my favorite, Andy, Andy, you didn't say you didn't mention 10 out of 10. It's the only film. It is. It is the only film that got a 10 out of 10 on the rating room. So there's a a spoiler for people. Although it's, it's been released now, so it's not really a spoiler. But yeah, that was that was my one 10 out of 10 from the pod. Now, Jay, was that a 10 out of 10 for you as well or no? No, so my favourite is Goldfinger. So no, none of the Bond films got 10 out of 10, actually. So Andy Skyfall is the only film out of the 25 in the rating room that's got 10 out of 10 so far. So that's interesting. Goldfinger, I think, is, is my favourite. It's because you've got one of the best Bond villains in Goldfinger. You've got one of the best Bond girls. You've got scenes where you think Bond potentially could die. I'm thinking about, you know, on the table with the laser. And I tend to gravitate to the films where Bond is more of a spy film. So less of an action film, it's more of a spy film. So that's why my top five tend to feature films from like the, the 60s, because I do like that, the, the spy part of it. And I like the films where Bond goes undercover and it's not necessarily a personal story. He, he has, you know, each film is potentially a standalone film. And he has to go undercover to get the information or stop what's going to happen. I, I like those kind of films. I do too, where he's actually, uh, well, doing his job, for the lack of a better term. Because it's okay to once in a while have a film like License to Kill, where you know he's revoked, he has his license revoked and has to go rogue. But uh, yeah, really, I think a lot of us true fans just like to see James Bond doing spy stuff. And, and I think that's completely uh, fair it, it is, you know, something that that you really like uh, about that film. Let's go with favorite villains and let's start with you, Jay. Uh, who's your number one villain? Well, it's Goldfinger, actually. It is Goldfinger. Yeah, it Goldfinger. is Goldfinger. So Goldfinger scored quite highly across the different uh, metrics that we're ranking each week. So, yeah, Goldfinger. I like his his plot in terms of what he wanted to do i like that he's he's not physically menacing he's obviously got odd job you know as his main henchman because some of the villains are physically and they can look after themselves but goldfinger needs to have odd job there with him and i just like his whole demeanor as well goldfinger i like the old classic villains 
Yes. Yeah, I thought he was great. I always wondered with uh, Goldfinger played by Gert Frobe, his voice was dubbed for that film. I don't know if you've ever found footage of his original voice. I'm just curious how it would sound. No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't looked on YouTube, but yeah, I'd be intrigued to listen to that as well. Must must be out there. But uh, Andy, who's your favorite Bond villain? So it's funny that Jay mentioned Goldfinger because for the longest time on the rating room, Goldfinger was my top film and Auric Goldfinger was my top villain. But he was beaten into second place by the villain from Skyfall, Raoul Silver, played by Heavy Bottom. So I, I completely agree with everything Jay's saying around Goldfinger, but Raoul Silver, for me, just just edged it. He had that mix of kind of being sadistic, but also being quite a quite a light-hearted character in, in places. He, the fact that he's he's got the same or similar backstory to Bond helps, so he's, they're kind of equals in that regard. And just his mannerism, there's something dangerous about him. Even even in his lightest moments when he's just you know having casual conversation, you always get that element of danger from him, and it's wildly unpredictable. I just think he was fantastic in the role. I think Javier Bardem deserves all the props for that. He was he was incredible. But yeah, he just pips Goldfinger for me as my top villain. Yeah, it's you know who he always reminded me of. I don't know if you've seen the movie because it's a completely different genre, but. Goodfellas, the uh, the mob yes. movie from 1990. Fantastic film, yeah. And you've got, I think his name is Pauly, who is the big boss. And he's kind of this, you know, pudgy guy. You never think that he would be violent. But he's the mastermind. He's running everything. He's got all these thugs and muscle working for him. And I always thought of Goldfinger as that kind of villain. Like a an almost like corporate villain. But, you know, he could take away everyone and everything you liked and loved if you ever crossed him. So yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I think Goldfinger fits into that kind of vein as a villain. So that's cool. Just keep, keep it with the classics. Moby, before we move on, I've, I've just looked at your Bond villains just to recap um, what you said, obviously in, in the episode that's coming out soon. And neither of our favorite villains actually appear in your top five yeah i think we discussed that on your podcast a little bit and i do think that has to do with me being a bit younger and when i got into bond again i I do think nostalgia had a major effect on me in really liking not just pierce brosnan's bond but you know timothy delton's bond which immediately preceded pierce brosnan and then right before that it was roger moore who was heavily influenced by my mom's uh, like of of him as a Bond. And yeah, for me, for whatever reason, whether it's Bond girls or villains or the overall story, the further back you go, just the less high up they would go on my list. And I kind of pause there because it's not like I don't like those movies. I really do. They're, I, I watch them regularly as much as I put my Pierce Brosnan Bond movies through my circulation, through my DVD player. But I just, you're right. I the cl- really there's no emotional connection between me and the quote unquote classic bond movies villains bond girls and i i think that's really where it comes from i mean obviously styles are different fashions different makeups different and you know in the case of like for example bond girls which is my next question for you just like the <laughs> 
the, the girls in the 1960s bonds are kind of my grandmother's age and they they dressed like with makeup and clothing that I saw in pictures that my grandmothers would wear and it's just you know much more the hairstyles and like I'm saying that the clothing styles of the newer Bond girls are are just more attractive but also I more relate to the Bond villains of the newer films where they're dealing with you know nuclear technology that I have a little bit of a a grasp on through my studies and, you know, just their motivations are more contemporary. And I think that just meant a lot to me because of my age. And I think that's why there's, there's the difference there. But I, I mean, I do just, just for fun, want to discuss who's your favorite Bond girl. So uh, Jay, let's start with you on that. So the Bond girls, I, I don't rate them purely on physical attributes. So I, the, the Bond girls that are high on my list are the ones that feature quite a lot in the film. So I, I do an element of where they rank in terms of how supportive they are to the Bond character, how much they drive the, the film forward, etc. So I've gone old again. So I have gone for um, Tracy DiVincenzo from Her Majesty's Secret Service, obviously Tracy Bond, the, the only girl lucky enough to get Bond to marry him. So, yeah, I've gone for 100 Classics. And it's obviously George Lazenby film. And it is a film that's really good. Uh, it's a sad film. One of the only times I think I got probably tearful watching Bond, actually, in this rewatch um, podcast, because that end scene's really sad. Yeah, he kind of, that's the one Bond movie where he loses, in a way. He doesn't lose the mission, but you, you're left leaving that movie feeling like James Bond lost because he lost what really mattered to him. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see how the franchise carried on if he came back for future films, because as we said on the pod, when Connery picks up the mantle again, it, it wasn't really seamless when, you know, he, he's tracking down Blofeld, but it's a bit more um, lighthearted, whereas with On a Magic Secret Service finishing, he's quite broken. But no, Diana Rigg, Chasey, and Bond is my favourite Good choice. Good choice. I Tracy Bond, no arguments there. Andy, how about you? So I would never have picked this Bond girl before the podcast, but you know, I've got to stay true to how we ranked it. And so I'm going back to From Russia with Love for my pick. And uh, Daniela Bianchi played the role of Tatiana Romanova. And when I put her in at number one in episode two, no Bond girl has compared since. Some have got close. But for me, she was just an incredible Bond girl. The old, you know, the, the classic Bond girl, some, you know, some elements of, dare I say, damsel in distress, because that was kind of part of the, the package back then, wasn't it? Bond would always save the girl. And in modern times, the Bond girls have been a bit more impactful, a bit more powerful, a bit more independent. And I really like that in a Bond girl. But despite all that, Tatiana Romanova always remained number one on my list. Uh, just a... Uh, an incredible performance and a beautiful, beautiful bongo. Absolutely. And there's, there's really this understated strength to her, that whole movie. It's hard to put a finger on, but it really comes across in, in her scenes. I think that's, that's a great early bond uh, girl. And I, I guess bond girl overall in the franchise too. I, I do agree that the actress Daniela Bianchi is absolutely gorgeous as well. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, we've got favorite villain, favorite favorite Bond movie, uh, favorite Bond girl. I think that's all I had on kind of the specifics. I just wanted to to pick your brain a little bit on that. But, you know, I guess to kind of start to close things out here, this is season one of, of your podcast. Uh, do you have anything to tease at all about season two, where you might be headed? So Jay and I have been speaking long and hard about what we're going to do in future seasons. We've still got a, a few weeks to go with season one. You know, we've got guest episodes, including yourself, coming very, very soon, or depending when this drop, it may already be released, but uh, coming very, very soon. Future guest episodes in the pipeline. And for season two, we're, I think we're pretty much decided, pretty much decided. So I can't say with 100% certainty, but uh, we're going to start season two with something big. Ooh, okay. That's that's a good little tease there. And uh, yes, in regards to chronological timeline, our episode, listener, you will be listening to this on May 15th or later. My episode with the boys, with Jay and Andy, should have dropped just a few days earlier. We will have link in the show notes um, for this podcast to link directly to my appearance. And... Um, yeah, really looking forward to it. Uh, Leland, do you have any other uh, questions as we close this out? I, honestly, it's been really interesting. I think the the last kind of like this episode included in our previous episode, we've had guests that are, are like we've been talking about passion that are passionate about areas in which I'm like less acquainted. So I've really enjoyed uh, across the two episodes being able to like hear people speak about something that I really haven't delved into myself. I am wondering if on your shows, because we've really been talking about the movies themselves, but do you two touch on at all like the behind the scenes transition of the Bonds? Because I know, you know, over what, 40 years of this franchise, 25 films, like there's certainly been its fair share of controversies with the Bonds themselves and maybe other spearheaders of of the movies, uh, etc. Do you touch on that kind of stuff at all? Because like. We've definitely, like you've all definitely said, like, boy, it would have been awesome if, you know, X-Bond had a couple more films and kind of commented on how you don't think Brosnan could have really done a Casino Royale. But would it have been as difficult to maybe plug in some, plug in a different Bond into like the first film of a transition between some of these actors, do you think? Maybe start with, uh, how about Jay? What's your opinion on that kind of stuff? So we have touched upon uh, a number of times, especially with Roger Moore, you know, did he go on too long? Would it have been better if Dalton came earlier, like I mentioned earlier about Brosnan starting? So we have touched on different elements. And also with each film, we, we do research it. So we look at other actors that have been linked to Bond, um, playing the Bond role. Um, we've also done special episodes where we deep dive into the, each of the actors that have played Bond. So, you know, for example, Pierce Brosnan, he was he was approached to be Bond earlier on, but he couldn't do it because of Remington still. So we do right, look right. at the kind of behind the scenes as well. And what we do as well in each of the episodes is when certain actors have appeared in that film, we look at some of the other films that they've done as well. Yeah, I must give props to Jay with this. He's, he kind of does the lead on the research. And uh, yeah, to his point, we, we don't just talk about the film. You know, yeah, and it, you can watch the film for yourselves. We just give our notes and thoughts along the way. But before and after, we, you know, we've got the rating room 
is our name. So we try and rate things and rank things. But behind the scenes is really where I find the most fascinating stuff. Uh, the research. Act, actors is one thing, you know, did could we have had different actors playing the role of James Bond? Back in the in the sixties, before Connery was mentioned, names like Cary Grant were were mooted as a potential Bond. Going through the ages, you know, when, when Daniel Craig took the mantle, he was he was laughed laughed out of the building almost because you know, I think he was Why he was even blonde. dubbed James Blonde, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Nobody wanted Daniel Craig. Uh, and at the time I remember thinking I really wanted Clive Owen to take the Me role. Too. I thought he would mm. he would have been a tremendous bond. So yeah, and it's it's really good to delve into that because at the time, probably you know, thinking of Craig, you know, I'd have been in my early twenties at the time. Jay would have been sort of mid forties. So we'd have probably known a little <laughs> bit in the news there. Sorry, I had to get it in, Joe. So it's, it's a running <laughs> joke that is. There's only about there's only about three years difference, but there's an ongoing joke through the podcast. Yeah, but yeah, the, the the initial number's different, so I I count that as a generation <laughs> apart. But yeah, so so before that, you know, I would have never really known about the stuff that was going on in the in the background. It was always just I like the Bond films, and I've read a couple of the short stories. That's that's about it. So the process of going through the research has been educational for me as well to find out all the stuff that's going on in the background and i've mentioned this i think i'm probably mentioning this on our future end of season special which is uh, currently being edited but i mentioned this the most fascinating fact that i can think of about james bond is that in the novels he is only scottish because sean connery is scottish not the other way around so oh, it was wow. never mentioned that he was scottish but ian fleming was so impressed with connery's portrayal that he then wrote into the books that James Bond was Scottish. And that just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Cool. That's really interesting. I, I that behind the scenes stuff also like interests me a lot. So that's that's a, a big draw for me too. Yeah, well, one shocking thing I found in the past few years was that Sean Connery was bald when he was doing those James Bonds. Because it's a good hairpiece for the 1960s. Like I still can't notice when I look at at scenes and so i i thought that was uh that was interesting right because you know he's always been this image of masculinity and virility and traditional and like i have no problem with baldness at all like i think it's such an overblown thing but the fact that you know he had this thing that was considered somewhat undesirable and they just fixed it with a hairpiece for a decade in those films i just i don't know i don't know why i enjoy that vulnerability in some of the connery episodes jay and i mentioned that he was starting to look old towards the end yeah. but he he wasn't actually that old when he played the role of one i think he started when he was either 30 or 31 yeah. and then played the role yeah. for would it be nine years so it'd have been maybe 41 when he did diamonds are forever which is not old but he certainly looked a lot older than that he looked a lot older i don't know if it was the cigarettes back then or nutrition or whatever but for a man who started in his early 30s, you even look at Dr. No and, oof, doesn't look early 30s to me. But you know he was. It's just that generation. It's an interesting point you mentioned about balding, because I wonder if we ever have a bald James Bond. Yeah, you would have to go in a direction like a Jason Statham. I think you could explain it away with an actor like him. Maybe a Tom Hardy, if they ever went that route. He usually has a shaved head. I don't think it would be as big of a deal now. I, I certainly don't think it should be. But uh, yeah, it's interesting like how much they went to, to cover it up. 
And I mean, that even extends to Roger Moore. You hinted about, did he hold off too long? Because really, when you think about it, he, he was one bond that the producers really tried to string along. Like, I think Octopussy would have been a, a good end for him, but I think even the film before, which I believe was For Your Eyes Only, that I would have thought would be a good film for him because that's where he kind of went against the grain. He was a bit less comedic, a bit more of, you know, cranky, physical killer assassin bond, just a little bit more. I mean, I know I'm opening a can of worms here, but by the time they hit, uh, oh gosh, why am I drawing a blank on the 1985 film? The View to a Kill. Yes, View to a Kill. Daddy was definitely too old. And he even, like you could tell, he had like caked on shiny makeup in a lot of scenes. And oof, oof. That's that's where I respect the Bonds like Connery, who, you know, said, I'm done. Pierce Brosnan didn't hang on too long. Daniel Craig at least called his end a couple times, but he did try to call his end. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd rather slip my wrist. Oh, no, I'm coming back uh, okay. for no time yeah, to die. Welcome yeah. back. Yeah, so happy to have you. <laughs> money, 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 money. <laughs> One of the other things I found interesting is that before we started the podcast, we assumed that he said his famous Bond, James Bond in every film, but he doesn't. And that's something that we, we learned through re-watching the 25 films. I thought that was interesting. Did, did you happen to take account of how many films he doesn't say we did yeah we we record it every and we tally it um every week so we have a little segment so he I says believe, that, was it 21 times yeah so four films he missed he didn't and i think if memory serves me correctly of those four where he doesn't say it three of them are connery films yeah yeah that's right yeah. yeah so connery only says it three times out of six films and he's the one arguably that established the line that is a legitimately fascinating trivia. I had no clue. But you're right. I mean, it's most iconic for Connery saying it. I'm thinking it's Goldfinger, you know, where he's lighting up a cigarette and he's just nonchalantly, you know, Bond, James Bond in the casino. And yeah, if that's only one out of three times he's ever said it. Wow. Interesting. Well, that's that's all I got. So unless you guys have uh, any final thoughts, you know, now's the time. And if you don't have any final thoughts, uh, let our listener know where where we can find you, where we can find your podcast, so they can catch up on all your episodes. Uh, so my my final thought is it's been great to speak to you both, uh, and thank you for having us on the show. Uh, the Rating Room can be found on all the usual sites: Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We have a YouTube channel. We have we have Instagram. We have TikTok. Um, all should be at the Rating Room. Uh, we also have a website as well, which has got all the information on. So if you go to www.theratingroom.com, we've got everything on there. And if anyone wants to contact us over email or on our social media, uh, feel free to do so. We have So theratingroom at gmail.com is our email address if you want to go long form. But we've got Facebook and Twitter if you want to send us something a little bit more digestible. We're, we're happy to respond, interact, agree, disagree with opinions. All All views are welcome. Perfect. Well, listener, please do give them a listen. Check out their website and their YouTube and and uh, other locations, uh, both the episode that I did with them, but I'm sure all the other episodes are very entertaining as well. So I'd like to thank you both for making time, uh, like you said, with the time distance or difference. Uh, it's pretty late at night there on your, your Sunday. So 
you know, we'll, we'll let you guys go here, but thank you so much for being on the show. It was incredible to have you. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Thank you. Been a really good, enjoyable experience. Thank you. Thank you both. All right. It's time for crazy about cardboard. It seems like I'm getting to say that pretty often lately, which is nice. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Now, uh, we may, I think we mentioned, uh, uh, perhaps in a past episode, we recently had a tea house where the members of T-HUD had kind of a weekend away. We got to play some games. Uh, we got to have some drinks, had lots of good food. Uh, one of the games which we, we played was Spartacus, a game of blood and treachery. Yes. Uh, this game came out originally uh, released in 2012, designed by Aaron Dill, John Kovaleski, Sean Swigert. Publisher uh, Gale Force Nine, it ha- which I was unaware of this uh, until recently, but it actually did a couple years ago. I think twenty twenty one had a second edition reprint. Oh, now I have the first edition, uh, and the first edition it is based off of uh, the television series Spartacus. For those, these I think it's a Stars series originally when it was airing around that twenty twelve area. Uh, so the copy I have has artwork uh or it's it's live like pictures the it's of the actors from the show the reprint whether or not the these whether or not gale force like has or, or just lost or didn't want to get the rights for the show to use the images it actually has original artwork in it uh which looks pretty nice i was looking at some pictures looks interesting apparently the copies play essentially the same so if there are anything, maybe you're maybe you may potentially be more familiar with the reprint. We're strictly talking about the rule set for the 2012 version. And if we touch on components and stuff like that, that is the version in which we are referring. But uh, I'll give you a quick overview. Absolutely. Everyone is playing uh, like a house in, in kind of gladiatorial times. You are attempting to become like the most influential dominus of, of your house. That house, of course, uh, has like gladiators and slaves within it. So there's certainly that area of, of maybe if you're on, if you shy away from that kind of thing, this may not be the game for you. But it's kind of as they were depicted in the show as well. But three main phases, the uh, intrigue phase, market phase, and then the I think it's just called the arena or the combat phase. And the goal of the game is to be the first one to get to 12 influence. You can start the game at varying levels of 1 to 12, depending on how long you'd like the game to be. So that's a, the length you can kind of tweak with. We started at one of the shorter versions. We started at 7, had to get up to 12. I think then you can start at 4 for a mid game and then 1 for like a long game. In my experience, the game can, depending on, again, the variation, can be up to 3 to 4 hours long if you really want to play 1 to 12. But in the intrigue phase, essentially, you're, you're, there's a big intrigue deck of cards that everyone gets refre- uh, three new ones dealt at the beginning of every intrigue phase. They're going to allow you to gain influence to fuck with the other houses. Um, some of the cards have influence requirements of which you need to have that amount before you can even play them. You are able to like make deals with the other players, a lot of wheeling and dealing in this game, none of which are actually binding. So two houses, if you need, if you're supposed to sit at seven and you need 11 influence to play this card, you can, prov- uh, you can ask another house to help you with it. You don't have to tell them what the card does. You can don't have to tell them who you're targeting. If they agree, maybe they say, well, give me three gold and I'll help you with this kind of thing. Like that's the kind of shit that 
wheeling and dealing you can do in this game, which is a large part of it. And I think really a fun part of it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You move on to the market phase where you can buy or, or sell equipment and gladiators and your slaves to each other. Um, in which there, then there is a, a market phase where new things come up on that you do a silent bid on. At this point in the game, everybody's treasury, which is, of course, all the gold they have, kind of becomes hidden. And then you simply, if you want to bid, it's a, it's a, a blind bid. You just put how many gold pieces you want in a closed fist. Everyone reveals the fist at the time. Highest bid wins. Obviously, ties continue to bid until there is a winner. Then the final combat phase, um, which preceding that at the end of the market, there's a bid for host. And that's the host of the games. And again, silent bid. So if you overspend in the market phase, you may not have enough to outbid everyone else to get the host. Being the host immediately gives you an influence and you get to offer the other houses to fight in the games. And there's going to be, I mean, there's plenty of reasons why you may or may not want to offer to particular people at the game, at the table, or maybe you can, you can always put yourself in there. And then the combat kind of assumes we can get into combat when we touch on that specifically, perhaps, but that's the very generalized overview of the game. There's actually quite a bit of rules for this one. The, the, I think for me, uh, I'm just going to lead right into my initial thoughts of this game. I've played this about four times over the course of like five or six years, like since I picked it up, right. And to me, this game shows its age, I think, uh, quite a bit. I can, it can, it can be very long. I would never play. I would never start at one influence. Never. No, no, no. Maybe four. I think seven is a, is a just a fine enough sweet spot, especially when you're teaching it to people to start at. But I mean, I enjoy this game. I am a fan of the show. And I think that really helps, especially getting to see the artwork, artwork of the characters, like the actual actors in the show. Uh, so I have a generally positive view of this game, but Moby, what were your first impressions? Yeah, my first impressions were that it was going to be uh, a lot harder of a game to learn than it was. I mean, you had said it was typically a game that took a few hours. I'm like, okay, here we go. This is going to be a game that's going to take me like, you know, three or four rounds just to start to understand it. And I didn't like it. It I caught on pretty quickly. I don't think I caught on to the nuances of the game, which I'll I'll dive into. Um, I do really like table talk. I love wheeling and dealing. Twilight Imperium 4 had a lot of that. Axis and Allies has a lot of that. Any game that has that I like because it adds kind of a, not so much a random, but a social component, which I enjoyed. I I like the bidding. I like how it's done with your hand and you open it up. I don't know why I thought that was such a nice touch. I like that there's a combat element to it. I think the combat could be more complex. I think they could have done some more work so that maybe you have more items that are less powerful that you can equip your gladiator with. I, I do like how there's both generic gladiators and kind of hero gladiators, which I'm guessing were in the show because looked like it was photographs. Yes. But I mean, I felt the combat was probably the weakest part of the game. Your gladiators go, I mean, they're plastic figures. They go in a nice little arena that's kind of circular in shape, but then they don't really do much except they have a movement point and occasionally you might jockey a little bit, but there's really not much strategy that I found in jockeying around. And anyways, once you got into the combat, it was pretty much just like roll, roll, hit, took a hit, took two hits, roll, roll. It just wasn't that deep. I do like about the combat how it can end in three different ways, though. 
I did really like that, which is like you lose, you get wounded or you get beheaded and that you actually bet on that. I thought that was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. The biggest mistake I made in that game, and it made me think of Twilight Imperium 4 as well, where you have to race to Rex and as long as you hold Rex, you keep stacking victory points. I mean, this game, I underappreciated how important it was to be the lead Dominus. And had I known how that game would end up with Ghost Marty winning pretty quick, I, I would have spent way more gold to try to be lead Dominus instead of leave it oh, with like him. to be the host. The be host the host. The yes, that's what it's called. The host. Because that's really what Ghost Marty did. He just stacked up a bunch of points by being host for a long time. Yeah, I think he got at least a couple. Um, but I mean, the interesting thing is like he didn't I don't believe he even fought in the games. No. So he, he never even had to. He never put in his own gladiators. I agree with you that the combat system itself is very shallow. I can overview that for for a listener if they're they're unfamiliar. So each each person, each gladiator or slave in the game has stats, an attack, a defense and a speed represented by red, black and blue dice, respectively. And what you do is you, when you're fighting, uh, you create a pool based on the numbers. So it could be three red, three black, and two blue, say. So you have a pool, a total pool of eight dice. When you're rolling and dealing your attacks and defending, uh, it's very straightforward. You need, the defender needs to match or exceed the number of uh, the attack pit value to block wounds so if you if you're rolling three attack dice and the defender has three you kind of line them up and match them up highest to lowest and then kind of resolve wounds from there but when you take wounds say if you took one wound from one attack you get to choose one dice from the pool to remove so generally i mean the first hit always is removed from the speed because this the value of the speed like the number of speed equals the number of squares uh, like hexes on the grid that you're you can move so once you're in melee, there's really no, you, you can just get rid of the, the speed, right? Yeah. Then kind of, I think generally it goes down to like removing defense because I think offense is kind of a king in, 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 the, in the game. So that's kind of how, how it works. And then you, you have to reduce, you can never reduce one of these three traits to zero before your gladiator is either defeated, wounded, or decapitated. They will. They all have to get down to one in each value, so like a pool of three dice total. And then from there, if you take, if you lose one dice, like say you suffered a, a single wound, and then you have, you would be left with two in your pool. Your gladiator is defeated. If you are left with one in your pool, you are injured. I think if all three are gone, then you're decapitated. Those numbers might be a little different, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is off the top of my head. Yeah. Sounds about right. And of course, decapitation means your your gladiator is dead. And then at the point, if your gladiator survives, the host gets to decide whether or not the loser win uh, lives or dies with a thumbs up or thumbs down. And I believe if the gladiators killed the house, I can't remember. But I think the winner of the fight gets an influence as well. So like there's influence. The games are pretty important as far as generating influence. And I think what we didn't do in our game uh, uh, when it comes to the, the the combat phase, is that there are things that you can employ during the intrigue to be able to and 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 in conjunction with collaboration with another player that you know both of you could be vying for host and it would be beneficial for either of those teamed up players to get host because then they can act this plan. But you could set up another player 
to be forced to put in like a, a weak gladiator or a slave if they if they only have those left in their in their stable be and then set up another player for an easy win uh that kind of stuff or because like every system in the game is actually fairly closely tied because gold is always important because one yes bidding for that host the way our game ended a tea house was that we just none of nobody had enough gold to outbid marty to get host that's correct yeah so he won host that influence immediately gave put him to 12 and generally so what happens when someone hits 12 the game isn't automatically over if at the end of one of these phases a single person is left with influence they win with sorry if a single person hits 12 influence they win if two or more people get to 12 in that same phase then there's a final tie-breaking fight in the arena which obviously didn't happen to us so in that instance in that in this game marty won host went to 12 there was nothing anybody could do to to either get themselves to 12 or make him lose one influence so we didn't actually need to play out the phase cuz there was nothing anybody could do so we didn't we didn't bother playing that last final combat cuz marty was ghost marty was was the victor so i don't know i think if the combat was more involved it would just make the game length longer and the game is already can already go for pretty long which i think is just one of the biggest gripes for me because I like all three phases and you can very quickly move through all three phases other than the combat. I think the combat is always going to take like a, an X amount of time, like a certain amount of time or longer, depending on how the fight goes. And like you said, you can, uh, you can improve how your gladiators fight by bidding on equipment in the market phase. The other problem with the market phase uh, or with the game in general is like, you're just drawing cards from the top of the deck. So during the market phase, you put out, I think it's a, an item per player. It might be per player or per player plus one. So with four players, we had at least four things that we would, you would flip open over one at a time would become public. So you don't know what's coming up to bid on. Again, another part of like managing your gold and deciding what may or may not be worth bidding highly uh, in the moment, which is another part of the game that I really like. I like the gold management, but it's a random deck. And that deck has like starter slaves put in, into it. Like it's got other slaves and gladiators and equipment. So there's no guarantee that you're going to get equipment that you could even bid on to put on your kind of mid tier or crappy gladiator to allow them to be better in the arena. So there's a bit of randomness with that. You could probably like tweak that market deck, pull some things out, maybe keep other things in. I suppose if, if you were a little more versed in the game itself, probably. Yeah. I mean, I, it was a couple of weeks ago now, so the specifics of like what cards we had to bid on are kind of fuzzy. But I do remember, especially the last few market rounds, like three or four, that uh, there were a lot of things that us would only bid like one or zero coins on. Like there was a lot of stuff yeah. coming up that just wasn't worth it for us. And I wouldn't call that a major deal, but it slightly put me out of the experience because see... The genius of this game for me was how it's made. It, it It is pretty immersive for a board game. Like you, you, like it does a good job of making you think you're a power player dominus at the table with other dom and I. But just like having this junk to bid on with all your wealth and not wanting to spend any money on it. I thought that took me out of the game a little bit. And then of course there'd be, you know, one thing that's super cool and everyone like throws their life savings at it. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a point other than that, except to agree with you that the randomness level can can bite you a little bit and affect the fun of that part of the round, at least. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder how much having all of those biddables face up right away for everyone to see. It's like you can kind of see the list of what's going to be available at this auction. I wonder how that would affect some of the bidding. Because then you could look, oh, well, the fourth thing in up for auction, I'm going to really want. So maybe the first three, a particular player is going to be lowballing on some items. I think it would be a good house rule to test, at least test that once. I think that definitely has potential. Because, yeah, I think the fun can go either way. I mean, you can overbid on something stupid and then something great comes up and you're like, oh, shit. But I do think it would be more useful to have everything face up, see do do the other players at the table want the same thing you do, and then are you going to get into much more bigger, more dramatic, and thus more fun fights with them to to figure it out? I don't know. The only way to know would be to play it. But I, I don't want to like move on too much, but on that question or on that uh, comment I had about how immersive it is, I do like how tied it, it is into the show. Like I do like seeing recognizable actors all over the character cards and the box and things like that. I thought that was cool because you're dealing with photographs, not like illustrations. And I felt like the starting teams were very different from each other, at least felt like they played different than each other. And a lot of times, you know, it's maybe one small change between the teams you can pick, but I, when I picked my team, like I felt like there was a definite strategy for it. And I forget what my team was, but it would appear to be like the the currently leading family, like the current family of the emperor. I think that's who I had. Yeah, I can't recall the name of your, your house, but you were essentially like the government. You were like, yes. <laughs> you're like adjacent that. to the government. And yeah, there, there are um, varying player powers depending on your house. Absolutely. And they are tied into kind of how those families are in the show. So again, it, it is very thematic as far as the source material that it's that it's based on. I have the I have the Serpent and the Wolf expansion, I believe it's called, which allows you to play up to six players, which the base game is only uh, two to four. So I think one of the houses you had was actually from that expansion. And the other thing that the expansion offers is rules for what's called a primus which you have to be at a, the host has to be at a certain influence level to be able to call a primus, but essentially it allows you to put four people fighting in the arena rather than two, which I've never been, I've never done before, but it seems nuts. So you would just make like two teams, right? Two teams of two to fight each other. That seems nuts. Uh, I really interesting. And that is the other thing I think that the combat does pretty well is with the betting. Like you mentioned, I really like that as well, but it does. The betting is like the, the one thing that allows, the entire table to feel invested in the combat, yes. even if you're not fighting, which is really smart. Yeah, it is. It is. And the fact that it actually feels like a bet proper, like it feels like you're betting on something that you have a chance to win big, but there's these other very possible potential ways that it could go. So yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, the game in general just does a good job of people keeping people invested, no matter what their phase is. There's always something interesting going on and i do like how when you know what you're doing the game does go by on a much faster clip yeah that's true i always tend to enjoy that where there's not a lot of dead time 
just people sitting around looking at their cards. Yeah, so overall, it's a pretty enjoyable game. I mean, I I know we're going to rank it in our penultimate BG review rankings. I don't know if we want to do that right now, but I know where, where it would slot in, which, to quote Chernobyl, not great, not horrible. <laughs> okay, hit, hit me with it. Yeah, hit me with it. Listener, um, and this is on the website, if you go to www.ttpodcast.com, the very top you'll see about and then you'll see bg review rankings beside it is mcu review rankings and if you click the bg review rankings you'll see what leland and myself have rated which is all the same games marty did three before he died (laughs) rest in peace i was debating where i put this game so it's below kemet but i don't know if it was higher or lower than downforce my belief is, is that if I played another game or two and I know what it is, it will be above Downforce. And I can pretty reliably say that. So I would put it fourth from bottom, which is right below Kemet, but right above Downforce. Looking at my list, I don't know where to... I think it's just going to go to the bottom. To the below this War of Mine, which is both of our bottoms. I believe, yeah, I think I'm going to put this at the very bottom of my list. I mean, I think we said before, like these lists and these rankings, these comparative rankings, like we're picking games that we like enjoy, right? Like I do enjoy this game, but this is by far the weakest game that we've we've covered, I think, uh, for me. It's very different than this war of mine. I'm just going to compare these two directly just because they're going to be next to each other. It's incredibly different, entirely different than this war of mine. This war of mine hits on other levels for me. Um, and also I can play with this war mine solo if I, if I want to. So yeah, I'm going to put this at the bottom of me based on, I, I really do think it's showing its age. I would be interested to see if, if the, the second uh, print tries to streamline some things. Again, the things that I've read uh, say that it, it essentially plays the exact same. So that I would be interested in seeing that, but, but this is going to be at the bottom of my list. Uh, that's again, not to say that, I hate this game. I just I, I do enjoy this game, but it's more going to be a, a middle of the road kind of game for me. Whereas everything else on this list has excelled in a specific area for me. And that is also despite me really enjoying the show. And like you say, really enjoying the thematics of the show, because like even some of the intrigue cards, the titles of them are just quotes from the show that characters would say, like some characters would say a few things over and over, like by Jupiter's cock and that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, this is going to be at the bottom, bottom of my list. Oh, you know what? That's fair enough when you explain it like that. And and I agree, listener, like we have these board game lists. Um, I think I'm speaking for both of us here and that we we enjoy all those games that we played. It's just where do we rank within them? Like we're not I mean, I don't know. Maybe at some point we'll review a game we both think is dog shit. And then I'll be like, well, how did you get this in your collection then? Better have been a gift. (laughs) But, you know, we have yet to to encounter that. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i thinking that I'm confident where I'm slotting it on my end because I do think I'm such a fan of table negotiation and table talk that I, I really do think Spartacus would stick out in a good way for me if I were to play it again. But I completely understand why you would put it at the bottom. And like, I, I you know, I don't think it's going to be the next board game we play again together. Like, I think that one is one we only bring up once in a while, too. Yes. For that reason alone, it's not going to be on the top of the list. The ones that are on the top of the list are games you can bring out any time and we're both excited to play. 
that is also kind of the other thing that I had in mind is like, if to me, it is the most difficult other than TI4, obviously the most difficult to get to the table in the like now 10 games that we've covered over the the course of the show. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Although I think once you kind of get over that hurdle of initially uh, teaching the game to people, that kind of same group, I think obviously it's going to make it a lot easier to get to the table, especially if everyone at the table enjoyed it. But that kind of goes the same with any game. Exactly. Exactly. Like, I definitely think we'll be playing it again. But if we do, I I would think it would be near the end of this year or else next year. Just with the other board games that you'll bring, the other favorites. So what do you think? How do you think this game would play at the full count with the expansion at six people? I think it would play. It would be a real test of your patience if it was a lot of new people and it was six people. I also think you have to as host as you bringing the game to your friends i think you have to be aware of the players we know certain people that play board games with us regularly that would not enjoy spartacus t hud would enjoy spartacus and and we did i know ghost marty and my brother enjoyed it but there are other people we commonly play board games with and you're probably thinking of some of them who just could not stand this game too long too complicated, based on gladiatorial fights, you know, bloody, literally the stage where they fight has a big blood spot in like the center seven hexes. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not going to appeal to players of all types. This is a niche game. There are certain types of board game players who are going to have the patience to even learn this game, nonetheless enjoy it. And so I think you have to really seriously think about who your table is. So do I think you could find five other players, including yourself being the six, that could make a good Spartacus game? Yes, but it would take planning. I, I definitely agree with you. It kind of, I was very surprised that this actually had a second printing. Like I didn't, you ha- you assume that to get a, re- a second edition of something, like there has to be a modicum of, of, of uh, popularity with the first edition, right? And like this thing got, a second printing like almost a decade after it was originally released yeah very surprising to me very surprising yeah that is surprising and i mean me not being an expert on the board game industry i've got no clue like if you were to tell me this game was super popular i wouldn't be surprised if you were to tell me that it was a major sales disappointment with the first edition i wouldn't be surprised either so it's like i i really don't know i wonder if the the artwork now being kind of separated from the show itself i can only imagine that that's going to make it a little more accessible too for people that kind of oh i mean everyone recognizes the name spartacus you know what i mean like if you tell somebody i have this game called spartacus they're going to get a pretty idea a pretty good idea of what and how that game like what's going to be in that type of game how it's going to play out like obviously there's going to be some form of gladiatorial combat in the game that kind of stuff but i do think there is I think there's there is quite a bit of depth and like you said the nuances uh playing this game just with the, with the entry cards themselves there's it could be a lot of back and forth I mean every house you can employ guards right and they can if you if you use a guard you kind of get rid of the card and roll and you have a chance to foil like a scheme that another house is playing on you so there's that kind of like defenses and like give and takes uh as well amongst the players and again like you said part of that wheeling and dealing which is is like the main draw, I think, of this game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, 
I totally hear you on that. And I guess that would be my biggest thumbs up and my and my biggest thumbs down for a potential player. Speaking to listener here, like listener, if you want a game where it's just like the game is completely defined by the game rules, you just roll a few die, pick up your cards and see if you win. This probably isn't your game. Like you do have to like table talk and negotiation. If you find talking and negotiation to not be fun, then you're not going to enjoy this game because a lot of your ability to succeed in this game comes on, like you said, convincing people to help you, outbidding people, negotiating for things. And it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but for people like myself, I think it's a little bit better than normal. Well said, well said. All right, uh, let's move on to end of show stuff, eh? End of show, baby. Our website, ttpopcast.com, the TTED Podcast on Facebook, in which Moby maintains the page there. TT Podcast on Instagram. I'm Leland underscore Steel on Twitter, and that is who I've been. I have been Moby, Leland's loyal co-host and sometimes tormentor, but uh, today... <laughs> <laughs> today is you know his guiding light a little bit towards the world of james bond so <laughs> De- definitely enjoyed that and uh thank you for uh spending your time with us uh listener today we'll see you again uh on our next episode and so with that all i've got to say is take care listener thanks listener Bye bye this has been a sounds of steel production